and Trevor will be reading uh, Job chapter 1. Thank you, Trevor. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out, from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, Another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, 
your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Good morning. Thanks very much for reading, Trevor. I, I need this water. It won't. That's very precarious. I can't reach it from this table, and so I'll need this table. Uh, I think my voice needs the water this morning. So I'm sure, I'm sure Job is still, Job chapter 1 is still open and uh, be helpful if it remains open for the next, goodness knows how many minutes. <coughs> what you're saying just doesn't add up. Okay, let us suppose, just for the sake of argument, that there is a God. I'm willing to accept that he may be loving, full of compassion and merciful, just as you say he is. Or, I can accept that he may be all-powerful. It may be true what you say, that there is nothing he cannot do. But how? How can you possibly say that he is both merciful and compassionate, and that he also has power over everything? All the suffering in this world proves that both cannot be true. It just doesn't make sense. If both were true, there wouldn't be any suffering. God would not allow it. Or at least, he would step in and stop all the suffering. Let me assure you that those are not my thoughts. But it's a common argument used by those who refuse to acknowledge the God whom we love and worship. And the reality of suffering is perhaps their most compelling argument for denying the existence of God. I do believe that God is loving. I believe that he is love. And I do believe that he is sovereign. And I do believe that God will help us as we study his word and as we think through this really quite difficult issue. So let me pray as we ask him to do that. Loving and sovereign God, please... Speak to us through our study of your word this morning. Please grant us, each of us, a right perspective on suffering and even an even deeper realisation that you are a good God and each one of us is precious to you. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So most of us 
have all sorts of questions around the problem of suffering. Questions which may have surfaced as we've had to endure suffering ourselves. And I use the word problem deliberately because there are no easy answers. And for some of our questions, I do not think there are any answers that really satisfy us. Job, the book, stands in isolation from all the other books of the Bible. No other biblical character features in it. And so it's difficult to put any date on the life of Job. However, it's generally accepted as being the oldest writing of the Bible on account of its style and vocabulary, which were based on a very, very ancient form of Hebrew. And there's little doubt that Job lived long before Moses, possibly even before Abraham, although some scholars suggest it might have been during the era of Jacob and Esau. And Job's main problem, which he has to grasp and come to terms with, is that God treats him very unfairly. And we all have sympathy with that. This one commentator has remarked, the book of Job is a war story without guns or weapons. It's a spiritual war between two unequal enemies. One, almighty God, always has the upper hand over his enemy, Satan, and he always will. We have a very clear picture of Job uh, from, uh, from the early verses in Job chapter 1. Uh, a man of integrity who loved and feared God. He was blameless. He shunned evil. He was exceedingly righteous. How often do we encounter men like Job in the Bible? Rarely, if at all. We're far, far more accustomed to reading of those, especially leaders and kings, as we did of King Manasseh last week, those who, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Job's concern uh, that there should be no offence against God extended to his children. Doubtless he prayed for them regularly, daily, and his fear of God would have been an example to them. But his concern for them and his love for God uh, caused him to go further. He took on the role uh, of priest of the family, offering sacrifices on behalf of his children, concerned as he was that they might have sinned and cursed God during their times of feasting. He was concerned that his whole family should be purified. Clearly, uh, he was a real family man. It's reasonable to assume that they were a very close-knit family, with all ten siblings seemingly getting on well with each other. Um, often that was not the case, although very few families with ten siblings today. But no rivalry between them. It's reasonable to assume that he was a good father, proud and rightly so of his children. And what more do we know about Job? Well, he was pretty wealthy, wasn't he? To the tune of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. And not surprisingly, he needed a large number of servants. And the writer of the book, and we don't know who wrote it, describes him as the greatest man 
among all the people of the East. And that's a very significant claim, probably on a par with the reputation that Solomon earned. We're told that he had greater wisdom than anyone else in the East. And we know from later in the book, uh, chapter 29, that he used his money, he was generous, he was a compassionate man, generous with his wealth, he cared deeply for those who were suffering. And here is what he says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. It's tempting to presume that Job's wealth was God's blessing as a reward for his blameless life. In the Hebrew culture, material prosperity was often seen as a sign of God's blessing, and equally the converse. Disobedience resulting in cursings. Psalm 1 would seem to support that. We read there that the righteous prospered and the unrighteous suffered. But that was not always the case, as is evident from other psalms. In Psalm 73, the psalmist complains about his troubles while the wicked are prospering. And you will recall that Jesus encountered this thinking. His own disciples wanted to know on one occasion who was responsible for the man's blindness. Was, was it the man who had sinned? Or was it his parents? And today we're often faced with that same thinking about the ultimate blessing and cursing of our destiny beyond this life. The, only, the erroneous thinking of many people, live a good life here and you can be sure to be welcomed into heaven to be blessed for eternity. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Job has, has every reason to be happy for he is enormously blessed by virtue of his great prosperity. But that is all about to change. And we're told why. We have a scene change in verses 6 to 12. Job is completely unaware of what is going on in the courts of heaven. The scene is where the angels, along with Satan, come before the Lord. Satan is totally committed to causing the downfall of righteous and godly people, just as he is today. In verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But Satan questions uh, Job's motive. Does Job fear God for nothing? You must know why he fears. It is only because you have blessed him with so much, have put a hedge uh, around him and his household and everything he has. Cause him to lose everything. Then he will surely curse you to your face. Satan 
described in Revelation as the accuser of the brethren, is cynical about the genuineness of Job's faith. And what he was saying was actually an accusation against God too, that God was plying Job with blessings in order to secure Job's allegiance. Satan believed that if his blessings were removed, Job would flip and curse God. It's difficult to understand why the Lord should grant permission to Satan. It may may be more accurate to say that we're totally shocked that the Lord should do so. But of course, God has Satan on a leash. Verse 12, he allows Satan certain power, but Satan is constrained. He must not lay a finger on Job himself. And yet, although Job was not harmed physically, others died, his children and some of his servants. That God should permit this is just difficult to understand. All we can say is that we know God's character. He is good. He is not capable of evil. I'm reminded of the time when Abraham pleaded with God on behalf of Sodom. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, said Abraham. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so Satan proceeds to use the authority he has been given. On one day, Job loses virtually everything through four simultaneous disasters which we read about um, from verses 13 uh, through to 17. All his livestock and all his children are lost. It's impossible to imagine how Job will have felt. He tears off his robe, shaves his head and falls to the ground to scream and demand answers of God. No, not at all. To worship him. We read in verse 20, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, despite these tragedies, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let us not think that we have to follow Job's example if we're hit by a tragedy. Almost certainly we're likely to shed tears than to worship God. We're more likely to cry out to him in our grief, wanting answers, possibly to, to question him. And that, we see that pattern in many of our psalms. It's not wrong to ask God questions when we have to endure suffering. Please look down just to the uh, first few verses of, of chapter 2. A further dialogue takes place between the Lord and Satan. Satan is not finished with Job. 
And in verse 3, the Lord repeats his commendation of Job for remaining blameless and upright. Ah, yes, Satan responds, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and then see how he reacts. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan is now granted permission to inflict physical pain and yet still spare Job's life. And in verse 7, we see what this pain is. Job is duly afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, perhaps a form of leprosy, and he uses a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself with it. And where does he do that? In verse 8, at the ash heap outside the city where the lepers would congregate. Despite encouragement from his wife in verse 9 to curse God and suffer the consequences, he refuses to do so. He refuses to sin. The writer of Job has skillfully brought us face to face with the suffering that we still encounter today through war, destitution, sickness, humiliation, bereavement, and also what is a common consequence, which we would see in chapter 3, depression. For Satan does get depressed, and understandably so. The hand of God has been hidden from Job. Having been privy to what has taken place, we can distinguish God's permissive will from his perfect ordering of the world. Obviously, we must never accept that every disaster uh, and every act of violence is God's appointment as part of his design for the world. To do so would be ludicrous. God's perfect order is no sin, no sickness, no satanic attacks, which all add up to no suffering. But this world is not as God made it when he pronounced it good. It is a fallen world, yes, still marked by the beauties of creation, but marred by disorder, struggle, pain and death. Job would have been simply bewildered. There's no way he could make sense of what had happened to him. He would never be able to reconcile his suffering with his love for God, who he knew was good and loving, and all-powerful. What was Job's greatest blessing? Not, of course, the sheep, the camels, the oxen, the donkeys, nor his many servants, and not even his sons and daughters, all of which he lost. His greatest blessing is what he didn't lose. His absolute confidence in Almighty God such that he was able to declare, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then even after he was inflicted by that, with that awful skin condition, he persevered. He gets a mention in James' letter. James identified him in his letter as an example of preserving a persevering faith. 
Now, just uh, some of you may not be familiar with the ending of this story in Job. Let me remind, uh, let me say how it does end uh, in the last chapter. The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys, seven sons and three daughters. But before that came, he had to suffer the further pain of his friends who sought to comfort him, but only tried to convince him that it must have been his sin that caused God uh, to inflict this suffering upon him. Job's suffering was only a problem for him because of his faith. Suffering is only a problem for those who believe in God and know that he is good. Without a belief in God, atheists don't have that problem. In our remaining time, I'd like to share a few thoughts about suffering. And firstly, I think there are three uh, others, but I came to mind three misconceptions about suffering. And the first misconception that is God's purpose, God's main purpose is to keep us happy. I do believe that every Sunday there are people in churches across our nation who believe that if they keep God happy by being in church, then God will keep them happy and free from suffering. They like to imagine God as a benevolent grandparent or more likely grandfather, and I know that we have no such grandparents here, who would give their grandchildren whatever is needed to keep them happy and peaceful, whether or not it is for their genuine good. God has a much, much higher purpose than that. That is not to say, of course, that God does not love to give us good gifts and meet our needs. We know from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that he does that. We do experience his goodness and kindness with all that he gives us. But a second misconception. God is indifferent to our suffering. And we need only reflect upon Jesus' response to suffering uh, during the time that he was on earth. Uh, if we reflect upon how Jesus responded to suffering, we realise that this is a lie, that God is indifferent to suffering. On a daily basis, Jesus demonstrated his compassion for the sick, the lame, the blind, the outcast from society. Jesus is God and reflects the heart of the Father. Just as Jesus wept with Mary and Martha on the death of Lazarus, we can be sure that God grieves with us in our suffering. In Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A third misconception 
There is nothing to be gained from suffering. There is no gain from pain. And this is not true. There are benefits from suffering. And here are just a few. Firstly, suffering can prove our faith. Our attitude to suffering can prove whether or not our faith is genuine. Job had this utter conviction that despite all that he lost and endured, that there was a good and sovereign God who loved him and cared for him. In times of suffering, we will often pray for a way out from our situation. And it may require a miracle, and there are times when God will grant those requests. But often God will grant us the grace to hold on to him. And that can be an even greater miracle as he sustains us. In 1 Peter 1, uh, we read these verses, um, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And secondly, God may use suffering to get our attention. It can be a wake-up call for our benefit. It may need to to expose an habitual sin and where there is no repentance. And secondly, it may need uh, to expose a love for the world and a turning away from him. It may need uh, a wake-up call to draw us back to himself, to drive us to the rock uh, and our refuge. In all these, God is demonstrating his love and his greater purpose. And what is that greater purpose? God's ultimate desire is that we should be with him for eternity. In 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let us remain firmly focused on God's ultimate purpose, that we should be with him for eternity. Just a a verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. As we close, let me share what Anne, uh, a writer Anne Voskamp said, writing about the senseless death of her sister, crushed by a truck when she was two. In the end, she concludes that the primary issue is whether we trust God's character. Is he really loving? Is he really just? And she concludes, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned it with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things that he deems best and right? 
He has already given us the incomprehensible. And do we ever think about the suffering that God has prevented through his intervention? The accidents that were waiting to happen that he has protected us from? The foolish mistakes and decisions that he has protected us from that would have caused us suffering? So often we focus on the suffering that we have to endure. But let us remember God's mercy as he has protected us. And I recall occasions when he certainly protected me from accidents that were about to happen. Our closing hymn was written by Horatio Spafford. I love the name Horatio. I'm predicting it will make a comeback and will feature in the top ten most popular boys' names within the next five years. Daniel and Rachel missed a great opportunity recently. (laughs) But I do love Joel. But I do, any potential future fathers here, I do commend to you the name Horatio. He was a lawyer, a Christian who lived in Chicago in the 19th century. Like Job, he was greatly blessed with considerable wealth, with only half the number of children, a son and four daughters. Sadly, his son died from scarlet fever at the age of four. A year later, a massive fire destroyed more than three square miles of the city, including many properties owned by Horatio. Despite their own substantial financial loss, the Spaffords assisted those who had lost, uh, lost property themselves. Two years later, uh, he and his wife Anna decided to have a family holiday in England. One day they were, on the day they were due to leave, an urgent business matter required Horatio to stay behind for a few days. So Anna and the four girls travelled without him. While crossing the Atlantic, their ship was in collision with another ship, And within just 12 minutes, it had sunk. 226 people lost their lives. The four girls were amongst them. Anna survived. She'd been found unconscious, floating on a plank of wood and uh, picked up by another ship and taken to Cardiff. On hearing of the tragedy, Horatio set out to join his wife. En route, the captain drew his attention to the spot where his daughters drowned. It is reported that it was then that Spafford wrote the hymn, it is, well, it is Well With My Soul. What did he mean, it is well with my soul? My soul or spirit is that part of me that's not physical. It is the true me. The soul lives on when the body dies. The state of our soul is far more important than the state of our body will ever be because God will judge us according to the state of our soul. Horatio Spafford was able to say that it was well with his soul because he was right with God. He was right with God because his sins were forgiven. Horatio knew Jesus had died for his sins and he had asked God to forgive him. And despite that great tragedy, Horatio held on to his Lord and Saviour. If there's some here this morning who've never asked Jesus to be their saviour, if that's your true for you, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins, then it is not well with your soul. And I would urge you to continue 
I would urge you not to continue through life with a soul that hurts and offends God. For we know that there will be a day of judgment and we don't know when that day will come. We need to have a soul uh, that is well and that God is pleased with. So please do reflect upon that as the, um, as the band now leads us in our fi final song, It Is Well With My Soul. <laughs>